Good morning. We're going to be reading um, in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, if you want to follow along. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly investigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Boy, she's great. I should just marry her. I already did. I'll do it again. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you? You good? I'm so glad you guys are here on this beautiful summer day. Um, I love my generation most of the time. Uh, we have this thing that we do. We like to make up words. Uh, you know, normal words are no longer fine. We need new words for normal things. Uh, things like living life, we now call adulting. Uh, apparently, back in the day, it was just like it wasn't even a word for it. You just existed. But now we call it adulting. Because uh, we're surprised at life. We shouldn't have been. Our parents warned us of things. They told us that this was going to be like. Uh, like the first time you get your first paycheck, you might remember this, and you're like, oh my goodness, that's how much the government takes? Uh, my parents told me, but I just ignored them, I guess, because it was a shock. Um, or how about when you realize your favorite foods now give you heartburn? Like that, that's really depressing. Uh, and you're like, man, I used to love this thing, and now I get sick by it. And I remember my dad used to say, I like bacon, but bacon doesn't like me. And I was like, why? This is crazy. Now I get it. Uh, or cereal. If anybody's in my small group, you know we could go on for like an hour about cereal. And I'm not even kidding. Uh, but now if I eat a bowl of cereal, I feel like I just got run over by a General Mills semi. It's terrible. I like, I'm, I'm done for days. It's like... I should have listened to my parents. They knew that eating two cups of sugar for breakfast every morning probably wasn't the best idea. But I loved it. I wanted it. And they were telling me these things. But I was not listening or something. And, and then it happens, and all of a sudden, we're all surprised that being an adult is hard. And we were told our whole lives, like, you got to grow up. There's responsibility. And my kids say it now, like, oh, man, I wish I was, I wish I was an adult. I could do whatever I wanted. Right? But, but you know, like you tell, you tell your kids, it's not all it's cracked up to be. They don't listen, and then they're surprised. It's what happens in life. People tell you, this is going to happen. This is what it's going to be like. And then when it happens, we're surprised. And I have a feeling many of us, if we walk through a situation like Stephen walked through, like Catherine just read, a lot of us would be surprised. We'd be surprised if that happened to us. We shouldn't be because the Bible tells us otherwise. I got the message for, the title for this message from 1 Peter 4.12 where it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, what happened to Stephen wasn't abnormal. In fact, Stephen, when he walked through it, I would bet that Stephen probably wasn't surprised this was going to happen because he knew the teachings of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said this in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Here it is. In the world you will have tribulation. Like he went around teaching this to people and the crowds were gathering around him and he was saying, this is going to come. So Stephen experiences this and I don't think he was surprised. 
How about this in Mark 10, 29 through 31? This is a very interesting passage. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Okay, here's some good news. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. That's great news. Houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Oh, and by the way, with persecutions. It's going to come. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So I have a feeling, because it happens to me, that we're often surprised at things we shouldn't be surprised at. So what I want to go after today, I want us to walk away, all of us this morning, saying, I won't be surprised. But instead, I will take heart and preach the gospel, because that's what Stephen was doing. He was preaching the gospel. He was doing exactly what God had called him to do, had empowered him to do, and these horrible things happened to him, but he took heart and he continued to preach. So if you've been with us, we've been working our way through the book of Acts for a while now. We're up to Acts chapter 6, and it's a really fascinating story. It's an exciting story because you see the foundation of this thing we call the church, and the church is growing, and it's expanding, and we see thousands upon thousands of people coming to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's risen from the dead. Things are happening. A new thing is going on. This is exciting times. And yeah, I mean, there was some tough stuff that happened, right? You have a couple of the apostles get thrown in prison, but like an angel breaks them out. Like, oh, that's awesome. Like even the authorities can't hold this thing back. There's prison bars are being broken open. Angels are showing up. People are getting healed. And then there's like a little trouble comes up, right? We learned last week that there were some widows from some Greek speaking Jews that were kind of being overlooked. So they uh, say to the people, the apostles are like, hey, pick out seven dudes uh, make sure they're really godly guys and uh, help them take care of these, the situation for us. We're going to go keep praying and teaching and preaching. And so they did. And the, and the congregation gathered and they picked out these men. And there were seven men. And one of these men is named Stephen. And Stephen now becomes the center of attention. Luke is going to focus his story in on this dude named Stephen. And it's going to narrow in, and we're going to get a close look at who this guy is. And there's a reason for that, because as you're going to find out the next, in the coming weeks, that what happens to Stephen is this hinge point, this turning event in the book of Acts. And everything's going to change from here on out, because, spoiler alert, Stephen's going to die. Okay? If you didn't know that, sorry. Come back next week, you'll figure out how. But that event blows the roof off the gospel, and it sends the gospel out to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts is how this one event propels the gospel forward. But today, I want us to look at Stephen and how he got himself in a little bit of trouble. And I want us to look at the story and be reminded that there are some things we should not be surprised about. There's three in particular, and hopefully walk away taking heart and preaching the gospel. So let's do that this morning. Three ways, three, three reminders, three things that we should not be surprised about. The first is this. We shouldn't be surprised how people respond. We shouldn't be surprised how people respond. Let's, let's look at this guy named Stephen, right? So if you remember our story from last week, we, we were taught that Stephen and these other men were called out because of their godly character. They were exemplary men. They were full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you go and read the rest of the story, if you remember what Catherine just read, this guy, Stephen, there is nothing bad written about him. He was a phenomenal dude. He was called to serve these widows who were being neglected. He was doing signs and wonders. He was performing miracles, most likely healing people. He was wise. He was a teacher. You're going to hear a really long sermon by him in, a, in the coming weeks. He was gifted. He was an amazing man. That's who Stephen was. People didn't receive him as such. 
If you look at our text, Luke calls out specifically some people who rose up to debate Stephen. If you look at, your, at our text here, verses 8, 9, it says that some men rose from the synagogue of the freedmen. Those were most likely just uh, slaves who had been freed. They'd earned their slavery for working so many years, paying off their debts. So there was a synagogue, and, and then in these synagogues were also synagogues from four different cities. Now to sum up these cities, two of them were located in North Africa, and two of them were located in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. And what's interesting about these cities is these cities were all Roman provinces. You know what language they speak in Roman provinces? Greek. These were Hellenists. These were the people that Stephen was serving. This was the community that was being forgotten. And Stephen was the one that stepped in and was like, I'm going to take care of your widows. I'm going to love them. And he was doing signs and wonders among these people. And, and what did they do? They're like, oh, Stephen, we love you. Thank you for taking care of our widows. No. They rose up and they debated him. They had words to say against him. Let's talk about this because I don't like what you're teaching the church, we, we shouldn't be surprised when people don't respond to our love and good deeds. We also, we also shouldn't be surprised when people don't respond to sound arguments, right? So they rose up to debate. They rose up to dispute. And it says they couldn't withstand his wisdom, and they couldn't withstand the spirit. Uh, the spirit. What's interesting about this phrasing in the text is, when it says rise up, the Greek there is the idea is they're standing up and then they couldn't withstand. So what he's really saying is they tried to stand up, but they couldn't stand up. They were knocked flat down. The arguments failed. They couldn't win. The debate was over. Stephen clearly won the argument. He debated and defeated them. His theology was superior. It wasn't that he was just wittier or funnier or cooler. His argument was clear, and they were defeated soundly. But what did they do? Were they like, oh, wow, Stephen, you were so right. I was wrong. We'll change our minds. You win. Is that what they did? No, they turned against him. That's the third thing we shouldn't be surprised when people do respond with plotting, slander, and lying. Look at verse 11, right? They, they instigated, they instigated this plot. They got people stirred up. They, they started spreading slanderous lies and rumors about him, getting the crowd all anxious and angry at him. Can you believe this Stephen guy? Can you believe what he's teaching? And they get more and more riled up, and there's this mob that forms. He presented the best argument. He presented this character of love for the least of these. And what do they do? Instead of accepting him, they plot to destroy him. And you shouldn't be surprised by those things. I've haven't never heard this explicitly, but sometimes I get this, and throughout my life, you know, I grew up in the church, and throughout my life, I got this, this idea that was communicated that somehow um, people don't accept Christians, they don't believe Christianity, they don't accept Christ because, you know, Christians are hypocrites, and, and they don't actually love people, and, and if we just uh, were involved in more social issues, and we cared more about the poor, and we did all these things. We cared about social justice or all these things that Christians should be doing. We aren't living like Jesus. If we do all these things, then, then people are going to believe in Christ. Or, you know, we need to know our apologetics more. We're not good at teaching the Bible clearly. Or we're not explicit when we preach the gospel. And we need to do all these things. And we need to make sure everybody knows how to defend the faith against these crazy atheists. If we do all those things, then... And people will believe. Right? And there's this underlying theme that, like, we're, not just, we're just not doing enough things. But here's the, here's the reality. You can present, present the most solid biblical arguments, 
be the most loving person in the entire planet and still be rejected. And I'm not saying those things aren't important because we do those things here in our church. The Bible calls us to do those things. But the point is that is to be expected. We should expect to be rejected when we present these arguments. When we should expect for people to reject us when we try to love them well. I mean, you don't get any more loving and any wise teacher than Jesus Christ. And they murdered him. We'll do everything right and our message will still be rejected. But don't beat yourself up. The point is, don't beat yourself up. And don't be surprised when the forces align against you and they lie about you and they use any weapon that they have at their disposal to try to get you shut down. Don't be surprised. Why is this? I think too often we think that we're fighting like a logical battle, a battle of wits or a theological battle, maybe even a social or political battle. We're not fighting that kind of battle. We're fighting a spiritual battle. We're fighting in a whole different realm. Notice they were not able to withstand not just Stephen's wisdom, but the Spirit himself. Look what Ephesians 6.12 says. Paul writes this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. And I'm talking about rulers and authorities in Washington, D.C., or the Indianapolis State House. The authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's our battlefront. That's where the war is being waged. And Satan has his forces lined up against us. He does not want the gospel to go forward. And look what he does. 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So church, don't be surprised. It's going to happen. So what do we do? What do we do with this news? Real easy. We take heart and we preach the gospel. I, you, I say take heart because think about this. Your work, all the efforts that you put into preaching the gospel, living a, a godly life, having good character, that's not what saves people. It's not you that does the work. We serve people and do good works. We study thought, theology and apologetics. We do that all because God has called us to, not because we save people, because it's God who saves people. He's the one that pulls them out of darkness into light. He's the one that raises them from death to life. And you just get to be the tool. You just get to be used. We take heart and we preach the gospel. I don't know if you caught this, but the theme in this text is the message of Jesus. Check it out. Go, go look. Uh, we're going to steal a little bit from Adam last week. Go back to verse 7. Go back to verse 7. It says, And the what continue to increase? The word of God. And you continue through the text. It says in verse 9, right, they, they disputed or debate. What are you disputing and debating? You're debating... They're debating a message. It's the message. In verses 10, 11, 13, 14, we hear these words of speak, speaking, saying. In verses 11 and 13, we talk about words. In verse 14, they talk about hearing this message. They heard some things. The message, it's about the message. It's about communicating this Jesus of Nazareth. They were livid that Stephen was teaching about Jesus. That's what they were mad at. He was preaching the gospel. Listen, it is so easy in our culture, and I say our culture because it's the only one I know. I don't know any other cultures. Maybe it happens in other cultures, but in our culture, it's really easy to be martyrs about our pet causes. And I don't know what your pet cause is. Like, maybe you're like, 
yeah, plant rights. Plants deserve to not be weeds. Let me stop pulling weeds out of the garden. All for weeds, right? Maybe that's your cause. Or maybe it's like my kid shouldn't have to wear a mask in school. Maybe that's your cause. Or whatever side of the aisle you're on politically, that's, that's the one you, you want to die on. That's the hill that you're going to die on. But that's not what Stephen was dying on. That wasn't his message. We should be willing to be rejected over Jesus. The application of this text is not to walk away and be like, I am going to stand up. Even if people reject me, I'm going to be a martyr for my cause. No, you need to be a martyr for Jesus. Are you going to be rejected because you speak too much of Jesus? Are you going to be rejected by telling everyone that Jesus came to save sinners? Are you going to be rejected by telling people that Jesus is calling everyone to repentance and to put their faith in Christ alone for salvation from their sins? That's the gospel that we preach. So don't be surprised at how people respond, but take heart. Preach the gospel. So I don't want you to be surprised how people respond. I also don't want you to be surprised when you have to follow the path of Jesus. When you have to follow the path of Jesus. Well, Drew, where do you get that? I don't hear anything in this text about following paths or whatever. Well, it's interesting when you pull back and look at the story of Stephen, and we're going to look at both Acts 6 and 7 in this, that these events that Stephen walks through, and if you're paying close attention, some of them sound familiar because they are familiar. In fact, uh, this theologian, Ben Witherington, who I disagree with on a whole bunch of things, but these, this, this he gets right. There are 10 specific, explicit ways where what Stephen walked through is exactly what Jesus walked through. Their experiences line up like this. Check these out. First, the trial before the Sanhedrin and the high priests. Jesus experienced that. Stephen experiences it. False witnesses rose up against both of them. Both of them gave a testimony about the destruction of the temple. Both of them talk about the, a temple being made with hands. This one's the most fascinating to me, the whole thing. The, the Son of Man saying, so you remember, Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin. And he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And you know what they do? They lose their minds. And that's what tips them over to the edge and sends them to the cross. Stephen, you'll find this out coming up in the next sermon. He's going to preach and he's going to say that he looks up in the clouds and he sees the Son of Man. And guess what the Sanhedrin do? They flip their lids, grab stones kill him. They're both charged with blasphemy. They're both questioned by the high priest Caiaphas. They both commit them, their spirits to the Lord. They both cry out with a loud voice. And they both intercede for their enemies and ask that God would forgive them. Stephen walked the path that Jesus walked. He's like, well, why, why is that? It's like Luke just being like creative. He's this creative writer. He took some English lit in high school and was like, this is a cool thing to do. No, that's not why he did it. He's trying to show us something. He's trying to show us that the gospel moves forward. Think about this. The gospel moves forward as people walk the gospel out. There's an old saying, you may have heard it, that, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The gospel actually propels forward as people continually walk the path that Jesus walked. And Stephen's story isn't new. If you read through the book of Acts, people are continually put to death and persecuted for their faith. And Jesus said this would happen. Matthew 16, 24 says this. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We often read that and think very figuratively, like, oh, I gotta take this cross, this cross that I bear of this trial I'm going through. There are people who literally bore the cross like Jesus. In the early church, 
Hundreds, if not thousands of Christians were also crucified. Literally happened. And we're told it's going to happen. And I know that's a hard pill to swallow. If you're anything like me, you talk about persecution, trials, martyrdom. I mean, I get real nervous studying this. You know, I'm like my stomach's in knots all week. It's hard. You ask yourself, well, how, how do you do it? How do you follow the path that Jesus followed? How do you walk that? Well, I have three things I want to give you that I think could be helpful. Now I know it can be helpful. I'll rephrase that. The first is this. Treasure Jesus above all else. Treasure Jesus above all else. Because here's the real question. Here's the question behind all the questions. What is worth dying for? Ask yourself that. What in your life is worth more than life itself? Many of you are parents here, and if I asked any one of you, would you die for your kid, you would say yes in a heartbeat. No questions asked. Yes, I would die for my kid. Or if you're married and you have your spouse here, right? You're like, yes, I would take a bullet for my spouse. I love them so much. I would die so they could live. And then I say, would you die for your faith? And we get a little squirmy. Am I right? And what that reveals is it's, it's not death that you're really afraid of, right? You're willing to die for things. What that shows is what we actually treasure most, what we value most. Because people have died for a whole lot lesser things, right? People die for their countries. People die for kings. People die for ideologies. One of you are thinking to yourself, I might die for a cupcake right now or maybe some air conditioning, Right? We, we're willing to die for things. But do you treasure Jesus that much? The Apostle Paul did. Did you know that? Go to Philippians 3. This is my favorite text in all of Scripture. Most convicting, but favorite. A little background of Philippians 3. Uh, Paul is giving a little... Sp- uh, kind of bio of himself and why he was like the best Jew that ever lived. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. You don't get anybody better than Paul. He was like star head of the Jewish Hall of Fame. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was trained by Gamaliel. He was the smartest Pharisee around. He had his best life now. He had it all until he met Christ. And listen to what he writes in verse 7. He says this, But whatever gain I had, all those other things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That word loss is the same concept as a shipwreck. Sitting at the bottom of the ocean, you're not getting it back. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I had suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And that word rubbish is so weak. The Greek word there is scatalon, scat, refuse, excrement. I can't get more explicit in church, but that's what it is. It's that explicit in the original language. It is that meaningless to him compared to Christ. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrections and of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul wanted to know Christ so much. Ready for this? He wanted to suffer. Paul wanted to suffer so he could know Christ better. That's how valuable Jesus was to him because every time he suffered and if he died for his faith, he was just that much closer to knowing Jesus. 
And if he died, he says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is to gain. He only wins when he dies. He gets what he always was after, which was Jesus. When you love Jesus more than anything else and you want to know him more than anything else, you will rejoice in any situation that allows you to be closer to him, to be closer to having and to hold him. Is that your heart for Christ? If not, what can you do to foster that? Because that's Christ's heart for you. He died for you, to have you, to hold you, to welcome you home. Treasure Jesus above all else. Number two is rely on the Holy Spirit. Because here's the thing, Stephen wasn't doing this all on his own. Like, you can look at it and be like, oh my goodness, this Stephen, what a super dude. How does he, man, I'm not like that. Well, he wasn't like that on his own. We've, you've seen through this whole thing that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, right? He, it was the Spirit who gave them the wisdom and the words to speak. It was the Spirit who empowered him to stand. And if you remember from Galatians, right, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, I only know that because of a children's song, because um, I can't remember lists that well. But for two of those fruits of the Spirit, right? Patience, self-control. Those happen because the Spirit is working in his life. And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter, again, that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. You have what you need to stand because you have the Spirit. I remember as a freshman in college, I went to a Bible college and we were taking Western Civ. 150 of us kids packed in a room like this, about as hot too, if I remember right. Um, packed in there and, and Sue Cagley, wonderful lady, uh, single woman, one of the smartest ladies I ever know. She had a um, photographic memory and she'd be teaching and you'd look at her and she'd go like this. And it was so weird. Like she'd do like half the class. Like why does she look at us? And so I remember talking to somebody who knew her and was like, oh, she has a photographic memory. She's reading what she read when she closed her eyes like that. I was like, well, okay. Um, anyway, so she's teaching us and telling us about the martyrs, you know, that have existed, that have happened throughout history and Western civilization. And she sensed this, again, like the anxiety, trepidation that you get. You know, people get real nervous and worry gets on their face when they hear about that. And wise woman she was, she looked at us, a bunch of freshmen. She's like, hey, I know it's easy to worry, will you have the faith to stand when you're called to stand? And she said this, God gives you the grace you need when you need it. You will stand. And I've never forgotten that. Because we have the Holy Spirit. We need to rely on that. And the last is this, stand on God's word. You aren't going to stand if you don't have this and you don't believe it and you don't hold to it. This contains the word of life. This is where the promises are. You need to know your Bibles. You need to know what God has promised you, what he says to you. This is the living word of God. It is the bread of life. This is what tells us who Jesus is, what he's done, who he is for us. And if you don't know this, you will fall. I don't know if you know much about the story of Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther was kind of the grand poopah of the Reformation. We owe a lot to this man. He was a Catholic monk and um, spent much of his life in fear of God because he knew he couldn't live up to God's standards and he would beat himself and do all sorts of crazy things trying to earn his righteousness until one day he read Romans and found that he could have Christ's righteousness, and he just needed to trust in the gospel. And so he started pushing back against the Catholic Church because they were preaching something very different. And if you, you understand the Catholic Church during this time period, you're, when you stand up against the Catholic Church, you're basically standing up against the world government, world ruler, because all the kings in Europe answered to the Pope because he had divine right. And so when you're standing up to the Catholic Church, it's a big deal. And so... 
they call in, hear his teachings. They want to they have words with him about what he's teaching and trying to get him to recant his message because he's preaching against the church. So they call him in to this thing called the Diet of Worms. I know it sounds weird. It's basically a council. Uh, a council that says, okay, tell us that you're going to stop teaching these things. And so he gives this long speech and basically says, I'm not, I'm not going to teach. Stop teaching. I believe this. And he finishes with this paragraph. This is how he ends his speech. He says, since your most serene majesty and your lordships require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures and by clear reason, for I do not trust in the pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. That is a man who fully trusted the word of God. His life was threatened. He had to run and hide often. Thankfully, he got to die in old age. He wasn't a martyr. But it wasn't easy for Martin Luther. So what do we do with all this? Well, we take heart and we preach the gospel. We take heart and we preach the gospel. We take heart because, yes, we will have to walk the path that Jesus walked. It is going to happen. I don't know what it's going to look like for you. I don't know what the future holds. I'm not promising anything other than you will walk through trials and persecution. It is going to happen in some way, shape, or form. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Did you see the end of Paul's cry in Philippians 3? Look at verse 11. He says, I'm willing to do all this that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, on the other side of all the tribulations, of all the trials, is resurrection. Sorrow lasts only for the night, but joy comes in the morning. These trials, these tribulations, these are only momentary. They're a blip in all of eternity where there is joy forevermore. You may not have your best life now, but you will, and you will have it forever. Listen, when you are in a resurrected body on a new earth, enjoying an unhindered relationship with your God face to face, none of this will matter. Everything you walk through, you will say, it was worth it, because look where I am now. So take heart. Dr. Bob Cutillo wrote a book that I've been reading. Yes, I'm recommending another book, and I'm not sorry about it. It's called uh, Pursuing Health in an Anxious Age. It's actually a book about uh, medical care. It's a basically gospel-centered perspective on health care. And of course, because it's the gospel, he's going to talk about the resurrection. And listen to what he says about the resurrection. He writes this, the resurrection promises us a new life and a new heaven and a new earth. God's good for us is not a continuation, a gradual improvement, or a maximization of the good of this life. It is completely different from the present, a new order where the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. It is a radical new life far beyond any future we could construct or imagine. That's how you walk the path that Jesus walked. You know on the other side of this is that. Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross. On the other side, and we preach the gospel. Because this is the message that we preach, right? If you walk the path that Jesus walked, you are a living testimony of the gospel. Do you get that? You are living, you are walking 
in front of everybody exactly what the message of the gospel is, that Jesus died and he rose again. So you die and you have resurrection coming. This is what Peter's talking about when he says, have an answer for the hope that is in you because people are going to look and they're going to see, man, they're getting it. They're getting dumped on. Their life is hard. They're getting persecuted. They're getting rejected. But wow, they have so much joy and hope. How is that even possible? And you can say this, I know Jesus. And you can't take that away from me. He died for my sins. I'm forgiven. I get to be with God forever and ever. I'm going to have a new body one day. All my aches and pains are going to be gone. This stuff that you're taking from me, I'm going to get it tenfold. And I'm going to see my Savior one day. And you know what? You, you can have that too. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have the hope of eternity. But you only can do that if you're walking the path that Jesus walked. You have to be fully convinced that Jesus is your greatest treasure, that the gospel is true, the promises are true, the story is true, if you're going to do this. But take heart, church. Preach the gospel. So I don't want you to be surprised at how people respond. I don't want you to be surprised when you have to follow the path of Jesus. And I don't want you to be surprised when God shows up. I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be surprised when God shows up because he, he will and he does. I mean, throughout this text, you can't help but see that God is leading the way through it all. God is the one that's directing Stephen. He is in charge of this whole plan. This is going exactly how God wanted it to. He's not surprised by any of this. I mean, check this out. Acts 6.5, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's here. He's working. He's guiding Stephen. 6.8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, is doing great wonders and signs. Who's performing those great wonders and signs through Stephen? The Holy Spirit. Acts 6.10, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. See, God is here. He's moving. But check out this. This is the most interesting and telling verse of them all. Jump down to 6.15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Say what? Oh, that's different. The idea here is the face of an angel is his face was glowing. It was radiating light. If you know your Bibles, there's only a handful of situations, times in the Bible where this happens. And when I say handful, I mean two. There's just two. One is on the Mount of Transfiguration when Christ himself is up on the mountain and, they, and, he, and he peels back the layer, right? And, and James and Peter and John see Jesus' deity, right? And, and there he is, he's glowing. And that makes sense because he's God. The other one is in the Old Testament. Do you remember this? Moses, he walks down the mountain and his face is aglow and they can't look at him. So they throw a paper bag over his head. Not a paper bag, they didn't have it back then. They put a cloth over his head. They can't look at him, right? And, and why? Why, were their face, why was his face aglow? Because he had been face to face with God, right? He saw God's glory and he was reflecting God's glory. And he, he was bearing the message, right? What was the message? It was the, new, it was the old covenant, the covenant that God was making with Israel. And so the Israelites saw him like, oh my goodness, this guy really has been with God. He is bearing this message from God. And isn't it interesting that they were accusing him of speaking against Moses? You think that's an accident? That God just so happened to make Stephen's face glow like Moses. It's like God saying, oh yeah, you think he's speaking against Moses, huh? Let me give you a new Moses. Why don't you listen to this guy's message? And Stephen's gonna preach. You know what he's gonna preach? He's gonna preach Jesus. And he's gonna preach the gospel. Because it is God's message. God is behind this. That's why I'm saying over and over, 
Take heart and preach the gospel. Take heart and preach the gospel. God is behind this. This is God's plan. It's from all eternity is for him to save people, to save his people from their sins, to create a world where there's no more tears, where all of us can enjoy a perfect relationship with God forevermore and doing it through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then as we walk that path and live it out and tell people of the good news, this is part of God's plan. And listen, it is on the winning side. In fact, he's already won. Do you get that? We've already won the game. We're on the winning. We are on the right side of history, church. Christians who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are on the right side of history. Nations will fall. Countries will fail. All the things that you're worried about right now, today, those will pass away Jesus Christ will reign forevermore. We win. So take heart and preach the gospel. You can't lose. If they come in and they take your kids and they take your house and they take your life, you still win. Nothing can stop this. Take heart, preach the gospel. And you say, I don't know. I don't know if God can still save people. I don't know if God can do this. I don't know if the gospels really can work. You don't know the people that I'm dealing with. Look in the mirror. Did God save you? It works and it will continue to work. It has always worked. So church, don't be surprised. Have proper expectations. Take heart, preach the gospel, and treasure Jesus, knowing that in the end, we get what we're after. We get him. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for men like Stephen, for martyrs throughout church history who've died for their faith. As has often been said, these are men and women the world was not worthy of. God, they had you as their greatest treasure. They had you to hold them up, to help them stand. And they knew that the battle had already been won. The victory was theirs. God, help us to hold on to that truth, to believe that even today as we go home, as we go back to our normal, ordinary lives tomorrow with the things that we face, help us all to see that the battle is won, the victory is yours, and we can live and take heart in that and not be surprised when bad things come. You said they would, but to carry on, preach the gospel and knowing that joy comes in the morning. And it's the name of your precious son we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You are loved. <laughs>